Hey, welcome to ULAR 2020. This is our virtual roundup, wherein we will give you our review of the meeting that just finished last week. Hi, I'm Jack Cush from University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. I'm Artie Kavanaugh from University of California, San Diego. And we are coming to you live from our kitchens, living rooms, wherever we, we do Zoom meetings these days. In this program, we're going to discuss the abstracts and presentations that we thought were of the greatest interest and most impact from ULAR 2020 last week. Uh, content was chosen without any bias or influence from people we shoot pool with. Uh, Artie, it was a virtual meeting, a different experience. what do you think? Uh, I give ULAR a little credit for putting together a virtual meeting in a very short period of time, but it, it really fell short of trying to emulate the live experience. I think the clearest uh, example of that were the posters. Uh, you and I for Roundup love to go to the posters, uh, find a, a fellow defending their work and uh, talk to them about the work that they've done, the other interpretations that are possible. Uh, and here that was, there was nothing. There was, there was uh, data, there were posters that were shown, uh, but no, no ability to interact, even though we tried, we tried to email people. Uh, it's just not the same as a live meeting. So we'll see as ACR is gonna be virtual this year, as well. Uh, we'll see if this is something that we're all going to get much better at, but I don't know that it'll replace the actual live meeting. Yeah, the give and take, uh, educational and social give and take is really what we missed out on, um, but also there's sort of a different uh, vibe with the virtual meeting. It's hard to get big time buy-in. When you go to, uh, in this case, Frankfurt, or when we go to, we should have gone to ACR in Washington, you're committed, you're there, you know, yeah. you're, you you may have your pub rounds later on, but you got work to do during the day and things to see. And uh, it's different if people are doing it at home. I think it's more uh, hit and miss sort of drive-by kind of education. So but let's give people what we thought was uh, important to us. Uh, I'm gonna start off with the Select Choice Study. This is a study of head-to-head -head monotherapy abatacid versus upadacitinib in RA patients who had failed a biologic DMARD prior to this. So they've been on a number of trials, this is a sort of difficult population, but this is the choice you would make. You fail a TNF inhibitor or some biologic, you're going to choose maybe um, another MOA or an oral uh, targeted synthetic. Um, they studied 270 patients. Their primary endpoint was change in DAS 28 CRP. Uh, and I think the surprise here was in the results. Actually, I did a Twitter poll on this and I asked people, what would you expect? And they kind of expected that. Um, UPA would win, but that they didn't expect much else than that. And in fact, UPA was better in this trial, um, significantly so in a number of measures, beginning at week 12, ACR 2057, but really at eight, week 26, 24, it was only ACR 50 and 70 that was significant. The DAS uh, 28 CRP was significant. The CDI was significant, although it didn't look that great. The numbers looked really good, but things that weren't different between the group at week 26 was the ACR 20 the fatigue score by facet, the pain scores, and Boolean remission was the same. But the real surprise was in the safety. The safety was like, wow, there's much more safety signals with upadacitinib than there was with abatacid. And a few of the bigger ones was hepatic disease, 23 events versus five events, UPA versus ABBA, grade three, four lymphopenia, 45 events versus 26 events, opportunistic infections, four versus one, CPK three versus one, there was no difference in zoster or VTEs. So the question is, 
Are you more impressed by the efficacy of UPA or the safety of ABBA? I think, as you said, it's both. And I think, of course, at the end of the day, we want to know which patient. So clearly some patients seem to have done better and certainly have done faster with the, the jacanib. But over the longer haul, they both seem to be very effective in a very refractory population. And then the, the safety, I think, with the jacanibs, we've been focused on the, the Zostro, been really interested in the VTE and MACE events. That's not where the differences were. The differences were more practical sort of issues like lab test changes. And I think that's an important discussion. And that's going to come into our choice of uh, what agent do you go to next? Uh, in patients like these who have been on a number of other biologic agents, number of conventional synthetics, refractory patient, but um, this, I think that does give us some information, good information that we can bring to the patient. I agree. I guess, what, what's, what, what did you like? Well, the, there's a, a lot of stuff, actually. I think there was a lot of good material at ULAR uh, this year. Uh, one of the studies presented for the first time, although we actually had it presented at the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium, and that was the EXCEED study. Uh, this is another head-to-head -head study. So this is in psoriatic arthritis. And uh, it's interesting when you look at head-to-head -head studies, our dermatology colleagues really way ahead of us in psoriasis. There's about 15 head-to-head -head studies. And that's nice because you can then really do a systematic analysis and perhaps actually make comparisons. Well, we're getting there in psoriatic arthritis. We did have the study last year with ixekizumab uh, compared to adalimumab head-to-head, where they did a combined outcome, the ACR50 plus the PASI100, and uh, in large measure, based on the, dip, the better uh, skin response, uh, they did better. This study was similar but different. <clears throat> this is aiming at being superior to adalimumab in the joint outcome, in the ACR20. Uh, and head-to-head -head secukinumab in a, a, a typical dosing, 300 milligrams loaded, and then every four weeks, adalimumab every two weeks. The primary endpoint was uh, not met. It was numerically better for the secukinumab, but by the way they did the analysis, and it's, it's a little bit complicated because it wasn't a strict uh, ACR20 non-responder imputation, which they would have actually won if they had used that. But both worked and both worked very well. Um, as you would expect, the skin was better with the IL-17 inhibitor. In fact, when the analyses were done using the outcome that was done in the secukinumab, uh, in the ixekizumab adalimumab study, it was similar, it was better. Um, from both of the studies now, you're starting to see maybe some differences with the safety signals we were talking about uh, for the select choice study. So uh, could it be at some point that the IL-17 inhibitors and then down the line, the 23 inhibitors might move up the algorithm treatment of psoriatic arthritis if they are safer? And certainly it seems that they're better for skin. And now we have two studies that show they're actually very good in, in terms of the uh, musculoskeletal demands. Yeah, so the interesting thing here was that it was not a positive trial, but it really was no different than the ixekizumab trial. The difference being that ixekizumab has a primary endpoint, a co-primary endpoint of skin and joints. This had only a, um, a the joint primary endpoint and then skin as well. 
uh, and they won on the skin, but they didn't make it on the joint, at least statistically significant wise, but it was numerically better. There were a few other things that were numerically better with the um, uh, secukinumab. Uh, I think it was a positive trial, although it could be viewed as a negative. I thought that it was just like the exekizumab result. And I think that's, a, as you say, it's an important result that's going to move the needle forward. Um, and uh, yeah, I do think this is interesting that it's another head-to-head -head trial. Um, and those are very common, very popular, I think very impactful in the dermatology world. I'm not so sure that head-to-head -head trials in the rheumatology world have yet been all that impactful. Um, every rheumatologist says, yeah, I want to see head-to-head. -head. But will they change their prescribing based on the EXCEED trial or based on the SELECT CHOICE trial? I, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I think that it may address some of the biases they have, particularly for the IL-17 inhibitors that the musculoskeletal manifestations may not be as robust, but the data would suggest that it really looks like they are across musculoskeletal manifestations. Yeah. My next one is the GLIS uh, ln or lupus nephritis trial, abstract OP0164. This was a phase three uh, trial of belimumab in patients with renal biopsy proven lupus nephritis. It's presented by Rich Fury, and I think it's a real win. Um, and there are not enough wins in lupus, and this is one of them. I think that it was, why was it a win this time? Why did this belimumab data look better than other belimumab data? I think number one, because it was um, an organ-specific outcome, as opposed to trying to get the lupus, sleet eye, 2K, 3K, whatever it takes um, to get a lupus outcome. Um, they went after a renal outcome and they use a measure of uh, primary efficacy renal response or PER defined as a urine to protein creatinine ratio of less than 7.7 uh, at week 104. They enrolled 448 patients on background therapies, gave them either placebo or belimumab. And then in the end, belimumab had a 43% primary endpoint response to PER versus placebo 32%. That was significant. 55% um, better by odds ratio. Again, it met uh, many other endpoints that they had included in there, the things that you would see in lupus trials. Adverse events were the same. I think this is really telling for the way lupus trials probably should go in the future, looking at uh, organ-specific outcomes rather than trying to be effective in all domains of lupus, which is not reasonable. Yeah, I think, as you said, uh, the BLIMMAB had sort of gotten the reputation as being kind of uh, rituximab light. Um, and I remember years ago saying that to someone who had worked for the company and their response was, oh, and I said, this is like the Miller Lite of B-cell therapies. And the response was, they sell an awful lot of Miller Lite. Um, and uh, that was the, the, both the good and the bad, that the effect size across the domains was relatively modest but the safety was also pretty good. And I think in this study, they, 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 kudos to the, to the developer. They rolled the dice and committed to a very large study, which they needed to do because I think they felt going in that the effect size, if it was there, was going to be small. So they needed to have a lot of people to show convincingly that it was there. They used a, a, a standard outcome. The, the lupus outcomes are a bit of a mess when you think of the bilag, but focused on the kidney, these all make uh, very much sense. And they picked the PERR, but they also looked at a com complete response rate. They looked at uh, renal worsening. So they looked at it in a number of ways and, and it, all, it all worked. So I think it is, it's an effective agent to be added on. As they had think it's seen in their other studies, tolerability wise, 
didn't seem to be much. And that's maybe not unexpected because these are on standard of care therapies. And I think maybe that's the message for lupus and lupus studies. Uh, you, you need a longer time. You need to assess over a longer period of time to really find a difference. You can use standard therapy. I think some of the failed earlier studies it would have been impossible to, for them to demonstrate an effect because they just started with gigantic doses of steroids and pulses of cytoxin. Here they used the, most of the people were on cell sept induction or microphenolate induction, um, a subset of them, a quarter one of the lupus uh, cyclophosphamide regimen. So there was standard of care there and, and they demonstrated a positive result. So, uh, and I have to say, Richie, uh, uh, did a great job presenting it. I think Eula gave him five minutes uh, and he went through a ton of data in, in a small amount of time. Getting back to the idea of a virtual meeting, it sure would have been nice to, to let him go a little bit more leisurely through that. But on the other hand, it was on virtual. So uh, I think I watched it three or four times because uh, it was going by so fast with so much information. So, uh, but a, a positive study for sure. So my next one, um, a, a favorite study uh, of, of mine, um, I think should be of, of everyone's. I remember, uh, you know, you and I, you hang around long enough and, and you keep thinking like, oh, this new study, now it's 17 years old. Uh, and that's the best study. Best study, truly one of the pivotal studies in rheumatology from way back in the day, early rheumatoid arthritis patients randomized to four different strategies uh, the uh, was a um, uh, conventional synthetic DMARD switch, conventional synthetic DMARD add-on, a COBRA, which for the young people was a, a bizarre ton of steroids sort of regimen that nobody uses anymore, and uh, from the start, a TNF inhibitor, in this case, infliximab and methotrexate. It was testing two things. One is, are those regimens different? But it was also, also testing treat-to-target and was one of the earliest and one of the best treat-to-target studies. And what it showed is that uh, when you do treat-to-target, in a way, all of the groups do well because you keep changing the therapy and they end up on more similar therapies than different therapies. So it showed this, the, the way that the study was done um, for 10 years, the, they were adjusted on this treat to target, and then they were uh, given back to the care of their rheumatologist and followed, and this is now 17 years of follow-up. And the question is, what is the impact on mortality? Uh, and I think that's a, a fascinating issue because at the end of the day, what do we want our patients to do? We want our patients to survive. We want these, this hard, tangible outcome, the better survival. We know that active rheumatoid arthritis is a risk for MACE events. And should we be able to avoid that with treat to target? These data look at this after 17 years. And I think you could say perhaps disappointingly, they say no, that there is still an increase in the cohort in terms of mortality. It was 28% in the best cohort compared to 21% in the age and sex adjust population. So even though we're doing very well in terms of their rheumatoid arthritis, there is still a increased risk of mortality. Now, you'd wanna have a lot of comparators. Would this group do better than say rheumatoid arthritis patients who are not treated to target? That would have been nice. They had had a group like that early on, but it, it sort of fell apart and it's too heterogeneous to be a good comparison. 
But I think this says that we, we think tree to target is gonna be the answer. And I think it can be an answer. I think it is good, but um, we have to, we, we can't just say it's, it's over, we won. I think we maybe have to look at other algorithms to do better so that all the patients are in remission or, or something. Uh, because it, it, these data would say that we're, maybe we're not doing as, as great as we thought we would. Do you think that um, not showing a major impact and mortality in all the group, all the patients in best had to do with them not following treat the target uh, as rigorously as they did in the beginning of the trial? Because that's, there's a that's a possibility as well. Overall, the group outcomes did look good. It looked like they were doing well. And they've shown these data every year they show the data. Um, and uh, if you look at drug-free remission, it's not really high, but it's about 15% across the groups, and that's being maintained. So I think they still are doing well, but that could be an, it could be that 10 years was great, and the mortality early on in the first couple of years did seem like it was better. But now, if you look at mortality, you want to look out longer time periods. Uh, there was a study from Japan in the IORA cohort presented at ULAR, which sort of said that, no, there's not an excess mortality, but it was early rheumatoid arthritis followed for only five years, and um, didn't correlate it with disease activity. So I don't know if I, I actually uh, trust that, that message from that data. But I think, yeah, we, we, I think we still need to learn about optimal treat to target. Agreed, agreed. It still is an unmet need. Um, my next, I think a lot of people really thought this was fabulous, and that was presented by Peter Merkel, OP0011, Avacapan in uh, ANCA-associated vasculitis. Um, this was an uh, ANC associated vasculitis clinical trial, um, 330 patients, where they were on either rituximab or cyclophosphamide, but then were also then randomized to either receive prednisone or avacapan um, uh, for a year, and, and they followed them. Avacapan is a, an oral C5A uh, receptor antagonist, uh, and the one-year results showed that avacapan and prednisone had similar remission rates. Um, and 72 versus 70%. Um, and, um, and it was the same actually early on in the study, actually at week, at week uh, 26 and then again at week 52. Uh, and there was overall somewhat less steroid toxicity related to Avacapan compared to the, the other patients. But uh, I wasn't impressed. I, I really expected a much better side effect profile than was there, but there was an advantage there. But I think that the fact that you got a win without heavy reliance on steroids and ANC-associated vasculitis was felt to be a major um, step forward. Now, steroids are cheap. Avacapan is not going to be cheap. Um, maybe we have to wait to get this advantage, but it still is, I think, uh, an important finding. Yeah, and we always like it when mechanistic studies make sense. And this one, you would have anticipated, uh, based on what it does, that it could work. So it's nice to see that it does. Um, yeah, the, the, the cost thing is certainly gonna be an issue, isn't it? Because uh, it's gonna have a utility across some rare orphan diseases even that it may get, gain approval on and that's gonna make the, the costing an issue. But uh, we have a number of patients for whom you know, the, the steroids do cause problems, as you said, or you, want to, you really wanna to try to minimize them to doses that are not gonna be tremendously effective, but uh, and we don't have a ton of choices for that. And it's, I, I give kudos to the um, international collaboration of rheumatologists who are doing 
studies in the vasculitides because they're not super common. You know, you think at each of our institutions or in each of our practices, we'll see a couple of people. And it's, it's much more difficult to do a study in, in any given site than say lupus, where you can get uh, quite a number of lupus patients or rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. So these really require um, international collaboration, agreement on the protocol and agreement on the evaluations and the conduct of the study. And uh, with this and some of the other studies they've done, um, they've done a real good job of that lately. Yeah, it's, I think this is, uh, and these are studies, and these patients are hard to get good data on. So again, it's sort of, as you say, an, uh, a major accomplishment by the study group to get this done. So one thing um, uh, I wanted to cover um, is the biosimilars. And we've talked about them over the past couple of years. A lot of interest, a lot of excitement. Uh, it's, of course, a, a big difference worldwide in that uh, many countries they have them and they're they're not even hardly talking about them uh, anymore, meaning that they just accept them. And at ULAR, there were far fewer biosimilar abstracts, 13, which is uh, about a third of what we have seen the past couple of years. Um, and I don't know why that is, except that I think that they're so accepted that um, it's, it's not even that novel anymore. Of course, we have a very different situation in the US. We don't have access to them. Uh, we have access to uh, only one, and that is biosimilars of infliximab. And, and we've seen some published studies uh, this spring saying that their penetrance is really not very great. And we know that, and we've seen that. And there are reasons for that. And I think we're still not close to the tipping point where we're uh, just assuming, hey, biosimilars, that's part and parcel of what we're going to practice, as they are in other countries. Um, one thing that uh, is interesting is, uh, and, and I think it'll be interesting to see how this sorts out, uh, there's the biosimilar infliximab CTP13, which is approved around the world as a uh, biosimilar of infliximab, and it's given intravenously. Lots of studies that show that it, it, it's, exact, it's, it's as biosimilar as you could want in terms of uh, efficacy, safety, immunogenicity. It's been looked at in a novel way in Europe, and that is as a subcutaneous uh, preparation. So very early on, there was a little bit of interest and very little study of subcutaneous infliximab originator in rheumatoid arthritis, and that's long gone, that never went anywhere. But the CTP13 manufacturer has done some studies with that in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and they are getting a favorable opinion from the, in the EMA that says that even though this is not a biosimilar, biosimilar by definition has to be the same route and dose and efficacy needs to be the same. It can't even be better efficacy. The safety might be able to be a little bit better, but this is a completely different, this is subcutaneous versus intravenous. They've had a couple of studies. They, they showed the data from the studies, which showed that um, a fixed dose, this is uh, 120 milligrams of CTP13 sub-Q every two weeks compared to three milligram per kilogram, which is the labeled starting doses around the world, um, IV, uh, looked like they, they had efficacy. Um, what they or looked at in a couple of po posters at ULAR was the immunogenicity and the impact of weight or BMI, body mass index. And it's interesting, they, they did not find a tremendous effect. Now, um, by the way the, the studies were designed, it was a relatively short 
period of exposure. So a, a small time to be able to find differences. But some of the concerns that we had had are that subcutaneous forms would be more immunogenic and they didn't find that. And that the fixed subcutaneous dose uh, might in certain diseases uh, not do as well as the weight adjusted intravenous dosing. And again, they didn't find that. Um, and this is from their Planet RA uh, study. So it's interesting, this is not a biosimilar pathway in the US. The FDA has clearly said this is a novel biologic agent. But if it is in Europe and other countries look to Europe and it's approved in other countries, a couple of years from now, it'd be interesting to see how all of this sorts out. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, and the FDA, it's novel in that the FDA considers it not as a biosimilar outside the, uh, away from the way it's usually given and, and approved for use in the United States. To develop infliximab as a subcutaneous therapy would require, you know, a, a long clinical trial development program. And, and biosimilar development is an abbreviated program where you basically do one trial and boom, you're done. because you And then you get all the indications of the parent drug. Well, again, the parent drugs in the United States are not sub-Q, so that's why it would never happen in the United States. But you wonder if the legislation on that could change just out of practicality based on, and based on the data that will accrue um, in, the, in Europe and elsewhere. So it, it is novel, and uh, Rene Westhoven um, is, uh, is, was certainly very instructive when I talked to him about this uh, at ACR, and I think that the current abstract is equally as impactful. So um, let's end up with um, this uh, abstract that we both looked at. Um, it's tofacitinib in systemic sclerosis. What, a JAK inhibitor? Yeah, that's right, it's Friday or FRI 0228. Um, this is a um, sort of a novel pilot trial, uh, investigator initiated, comes out of Bulgaria and Italy, wherein they enrolled 66 patients with systemic sclerosis. Um, and they randomized them to receive either five milligrams BID of tofacitinib or methotrexate seven and a half to 10 milligrams per week um, as a management of for their systemic sclerosis. Their endpoints were gonna be skin thickness as measured by the typical modified Rodman skin score or MRSS. Uh, and then also they use ultrasound to uh, actually measure the thick thickness of skin at a number of different sites, sort of like the modified Rodman, but it's, a, it's an ultrasound, ultrasound skin thickness score. And they also use ultrasound to assess tendon and joints, something called the US 10 SSC score. And the results were surprising. This is a six month trial, um, an active control trial. There's no placebo here. And the, it was significant for tofacitinib with a 50% reduction in the Rodman skin score. Uh, I think it was a 12.5% reduction or something like that for the 12.9% in the ultrasound skin thickness. And then when it came to the joint scores, it looked like it was a significant score. It was like 55%, 56% improvement in ultrasound MSK scores uh, compared to 12.5% in methotrexate. So these are very encouraging results in a very short trial in a reasonable number, albeit a small number of scleroderma patients. Uh, this is the problem with phase two scleroderma trials. They always look great. There's always a tremendous amount of excitement. And skin scores can often be the most misleading of clinical um, outcomes. Nonetheless, this was too impactful and in impressive to, um, to you know, not present, not put out there. If anything, uh, we should encourage uh, other, the, you know, tofacitin and other JAK inhibitors to really aggressively study this. We desperately need something in scleroderma. And I want to remind the audience, 
This is not an approved therapy for systemic sclerosis, so don't go there. We really need more experience. But uh, Artie, what was your take on this? Oh, as you said, Jack, uh, very big on mitnine, and it's really refreshing to see more and more studies on this. And the good thing about the more interest in the more studies is it really pushes the outcomes. And there's been a lot of talk. Think for how many years uh, Rodden skin score. That was it. Scleroderma equals Rodden skin score. A lot of function, a lot of assessment now of uh, lung function, and that would be interesting to see with a unique therapy such as this. Uh, the ultrasound is is fantastic, and in theory is could be centrally read, could be something that was much more quantifiable. The other outcomes, I'd love to see people really trying to push the envelope and say. You know, we're, we're, we, we may have more therapies in this condition. We need to know how we're assessing that. We saw that in, in psoriatic arthritis where the clinical trials really pushed the need for defining the outcomes and that's helped the clinical trials as well. So uh, maybe we're seeing a turn of a corner in the, the uh, in scleroderma. Although, as you said, the, 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 the past is littered with a number of very promising phase two studies that didn't pan out. So uh, hopeful, but uh, you, know, you, have to, you have to keep the past in mind. There are a few other scleroderma trials here, including others looking at lung outcomes and that looked, they were wins because they didn't get any worse. Uh, there was also a TGF beta study that was a, a sort of a pilot trial, a little too early for anything, but it's nonetheless ex exciting to see TGF beta in clinical trials as a target. So um, anyway, we want to thank the audience. That's it for this edition of UR2020 Virtual Roundup. Please go to the website. You can get these links. We'll have them linked up on, our, uh, on the website. Uh, we're going to see you at ACR. Um, on, on the, UR, on the ACR Room Now website, you can actually see how we covered RA, PSA, angst, spa, vasculitis, gout, stills disease, et cetera. You can go there and check that out. So Artie, thanks for doing this. We'll see everybody at ACR virtually. Virtually. But we'll see you. <laughs> All right. Take care now. Okay. So I.